Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Jones, joined today by Gareth McComsky, a solutions architect at Serverless Inc. Gareth is based out of Cape Town, South Africa, and has spent the last four years building serverless applications. Everything from breaking up a WordPress monolith into a set of serverless microservices to email parsers to full-blown CRUD applications. Before serverless, uh, Gareth came from a more traditional PHP and Symfony web development background. How are you doing today, Gareth? Not too bad. I feel like I should bow with that intro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do do what you need to. <laughs> we don't have the uh, don't have the webcam set up yet for the podcast, but eventually. <laughs> for the next time. Yeah, for the next time. Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, how are you doing? How's everything going? Well, not too bad. Uh, being kept really busy these days, besides the usual uh, virus locking everyone down at home and the kids keeping you busy while you try to get some work done. Uh, Stuff at Serverless has been quite busy, so that's going to be interesting for us to chat about with a uh, whole bunch of things. Like the, uh, we're currently making a move with our U, with our dashboard UI from one to another, and nice upgrade there. Uh, busy releasing a whole bunch of stuff with components. Uh, some work even going into uh, Serverless Framework, the OG Serverless Framework. Uh, so yeah, just being kept really, really busy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I guess like uh, what what type of things with the you mentioned the serverless dashboard? Um, what what type of things are happening there? Well, at the moment, we've had the dashboard now for just over a year, basically released out to folks to use as you know a, a tool to help monitor and manage your serverless applications and deployments into AWS accounts and CI/CD and a bunch of really nice features. Um, and we realized that it needed, the, the UI itself needed a sort of spruce up, uh, something just more optimized, uh, just a better UX overall. Uh, so we basically overhauled it. And it's kind of in line with our components work as well, because there's a ton of features we want to bring in with serverless components that the old UI and UX uh, wasn't really geared toward providing what we needed. Um, so right now, any folks who have been using serverless might be familiar with the dashboard at dashboard.serverless.com, but we're busy finalizing stuff with the new version at app.serverless.com. Essentially, the same uh, features provided in the back end, just with a different UI and UX on top to make things a bit easier to use and, and understand. So there's been a lot of work in that. I mean, we've got uh, uh, a lot of content we produced over the last year with the uh, previous uh, UI uh, that, that's going to need some massive updating coming up. That's going to be a lot of fun to do. Yeah, and in general, just just helping folks get used to a new way of doing things. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, I've checked out the app dot. I think it was app dot serverless dot com, mm. and it and it looks really like uh, streamlined compared to uh, what it was before. And I think like uh, it's kind of interesting. Was that was it purely based on just like giving more input in like a in a more streamlined way, or is there more? Was there like higher uh, pushes uh, to change it? What's interesting is after after you do something once, you can kind of sit back and see what people are using it for and how they're using things and the type of questions you keep getting. Uh, so an example of this is one of the uh, things we noticed is that uh, folks were uh, questioning what the use of app and org was. This isn't just essentially an organizational uh, setting that we applied in the dashboard so folks could maintain sort of some some semblance of organization of their applications. And also, like I mentioned, because of, of components coming in, we've been trying to simplify that whole concept between app and org so that it's less uh, less confusing to folks coming in trying to understand how this all works. So that's one of the drivers. The, the interface places less emphasis on that distinguishing characteristic between app and org and the separate services within them uh, to some degree. So that's that's quite nice. Um, and then certain features as well we've just noticed uh, aren't being used quite as much as we expected. Uh, so for example, safeguards, if anybody has been using that, um, it's something that we've, uh, we, we, we're removing from the uh, UI 
uh, because we found there aren't quite as many people who needed to use it through the UI. And we're essentially uh, making this available as an open source plugin. So folks who are still using safeguards can very easily continue to use them and even export their existing settings out of the dashboard and just continue to use them within their projects uh, themselves, which we've already got some feedback on. A lot of folks are kind of happy about that. They actually don't mind managing them themselves. And it just simplifies our backend, simplifies managing things for ourselves. Um, and a lot of other things like, for example, CICD, which is a feature of the old dashboard and we want to we want to provide means to integrate with other uh, BCS providers. Right now we support GitHub um, and pretty soon we're going to be adding support for Bitbucket as well. In fact, if you go now and look at setting CRCD up, I think you'll see a little indicator that that's coming soon um, and ultimately more of them. And the old UI kind of struggled to fit that in uh, the way we wanted it. So a lot of it's just been sort of cleaning up based on what we've seen people doing, feedback we've been getting, and then just trying to make things a lot simpler to use. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Uh, it's great to hear that the Bitbucket support is coming because I know that's been like one that we've definitely seen on like the consulting side is a lot of uh, Bitbucket users at like these bigger organizations. So that's cool that uh, that support is coming too. So yeah, to, to kind of dial back a bit, um, you know, uh, one thing that's really interesting is I was actually on a call with you at one point um, and you came across like you were like, I think I refer to you as like a serverless knight in like personal conversations or something. Because I was like, man, every, I was supposed to be helpful on like answering questions and you just knocked out every single question that came up. Um, and you're like, yeah, you know, you have this use case, use this uh, CloudFormation custom resource thing. Uh, and I was so impressed. And so I guess like what I would, what I'd be interested in is like, how did you start and how did you get to serverless and what does this transition look like and how did it all take place? Well, it started for me back in about 2016. Uh, so I think that was shortly after serverless framework went 1.0. Um, and I was, and, and you alluded to it in, in sort of the intro to me as well. I was working for an organization where they had this uh, monolithic WordPress stack that was essentially powering their entire e-commerce platform. And this was a, a tour company essentially that sold everything online. They weren't the traditional type where you go to a travel agency and potentially book. If you wanted to uh, book their tours, you had to go through the site itself. Um, and there were some, ser- some serious problems. I mean, they had been running for 10 years on this platform. They've been running okay on it, but the volumes that they were hoping to reach and just the growth that they were hoping for was being held back by the by what they were running on at the time. So I would never recommend somebody, you know, just go do a rewrite of an entire platform because they feel like it. It's never a good idea just for that reason. But if you do have really good reasons like it actually needs it and it's slowing you down, well, now you can start considering what you're going to do about it. So uh, at that point, I was like, like the interest just as well. I've, I've been a PHP developer most of my web development career. I was looking into the usual frameworks that I was familiar with, uh, trying to decide what to rebuild this platform on. And somebody, uh, a consultant to the company who was managing sort of the AWS side mentioned, maybe I should take a look at serverless. Never heard of it. Uh, thought, let me go take a peek. And when I read about it, it seemed really, really compelling, especially because the organization I was in uh, was essentially uh, two developers in the entire team. Uh, and while I'm I feel, I feel like I'm comfortable spinning up an EC2 instance and getting Linux set up and uh, a web server and so on. I'm not necessarily confident that I'm the most educated in setting things up securely and with the best possible performance and load balancing and all that kind of stuff. So the, the promise of having of being able to deploy something into the cloud with all of that already set up for you immediately was just too much to pass up. And that's where I really started uh, sinking my teeth into serverless a lot more. So and, I, and I've, I've spoken to this about this in talks as well, is that you never want to go into any new technology feed first and just replace everything immediately. You want to slowly sync yourself in and figure things out. So the test for us was that we needed, at that point, we, we needed to do a project where we replaced our uh, review mechanism 
you know, use, customers could leave reviews on the tours they went on. And with the way Google works in the review rankings that they show, you have to use a third-party reviews provider to do that with. Um, so the company was switching from one to the other, and this was the perfect opportunity to kind of test out serverless because we wanted to integrate into this review provider uh, on our side, and we decided to use serverless to do this with. So it's one of those nice situations where you have a piece of work you can do that's productive, but at the same time, uh, it's not critical to the running of the, of the platform. If reviews went down, it's not great, but it's not the end of the world. People can still check out and, and, and pay the company money. So those, those don't go down. Uh, but it's also busy enough and useful enough to get some, determine some usefulness out of the technology you're trying out. So ultimately, we ended up rebuilding the, the review portion of the application with serverless and including it into the, uh, the platform as essentially a widget on the, on the pages loaded through JavaScript. And when I saw how well that went, that was it for me. It kind of sealed my fate in serverless, as it were. I have essentially not looked back since then. And ultimately, that led us to uh, begin a re-architecture of the entire WordPress uh, platform into uh, a collection of serverless microservices using sort of the Jamstack paradigm that is quite popular with serverless these days. Um, yeah, and that's that's really where I got started. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a really cool, it's really, I have actually like two questions that I'll follow up with. But one thing about this, this whole migration process is to take on something like that and then to actually go through it and see it fully out. What, what type of things did you take away from it? And did it kind of like give you any insight into how people should think about migrations? I know that you, you mentioned something that, uh, you know, productive, not critical. Uh, it's like a small win. It's like busy. So you get some information insight into it. Um, how did you see things change after, did it cause like a ripple effect across the other services or across your team when you actually had this success take place? Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of loadings, especially from that initial sort of proof of concept. Um, one of the things that I remember, uh, one of our fears was, are we going to run out of lambdas? Because if you think about it, you know, if you have a site that has a few thousand simultaneous users on a website at the same time, um, and you hear this, you've only got, you know, in the, in the larger regions, you only have 3,000 concurrent lambdas. That doesn't sound like a lot. You worry if you're still going to start hitting those limits, especially when you have multiple lambda functions potentially running in parallel and asynchronously and so on. And very quickly, that question was answered that uh, it's actually, you have to be incredibly busy to really hit those limits because of the way lambdas warm up. And then once they warm, they can start executing really, really quickly. So that concurrency limit tends not to be as big an issue unless you really start hitting some massive user numbers. Um, cold starts was another very big question for us because we, we didn't really have experience. And the problem with, and I see this a lot actually, the problem with being a developer and working with serverless is that you see cold starts every single time you test something because you're writing code, you deploy your code, the Lambda service resets the Lambda function so that it's going to, on the next invocation, it uses the code you just pushed. So therefore, you experience a cold start every single time you test. And a lot of developers uh, start worrying about the impact of cold starts on, on, on the application when it goes into production. And for us, that was the true test because if uh, the, the review system uh, is a little sluggish, well, not the end of the world. We can always roll back to the previous version and just, you know, get it back up to speed uh, and fast. Uh, and ultimately, we found out that this wasn't as big a problem as we encountered. And, and I see this, I've seen this repeatedly over, over the years now where cold starts actually end up not being as big of an issue that most people think it's going to be. And then it was also just about getting experience, uh, essentially uh, working towards the strangler pattern, which is 
what uh, if you speak to many serverless people, it's something that will often be mentioned uh, as the way to transition from a more traditional stack to a serverless stack is using the strangler pattern, where you're essentially picking a specific portion of your application, breaking it off in some way and rerouting traffic from that portion of the application to your serverless uh, side of things. And in our case, that was that, that ended up being uh, easy, easy enough to do because a lot of the routing that was done for the WordPress app was done through uh, CloudFront. So we could essentially drop CloudFront paths in front of the catch-all path uh, and send traffic to a serverless uh, front end uh, and just the rest of the site would keep going to the WordPress side. So yeah, that was the sort of general strategy we ended up using. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, so I think the strangler pattern is a really good one. Um, definitely hear that a lot. Um, it's a great way to kind of like continue to keep your existing stuff and then build something out completely in isolation. And so that's that's really cool that y'all use that. Um, when it comes to the cold start problem, um, I, I think, do you think it has anything to do with like the maturity of serverless or like just all this stuff? There's so many different, like the, there can be so many different moving parts uh, at some points where, uh, you know, you see cold starts pop up, but sometimes, you know, people might be using way too many node bundles or something like there's like, is there a different way to develop with serverless? Well, these days, thankfully, I mean, over time, AWS has just gotten a lot better at uh, reducing cold starts to begin with. So that, that thankfully, that, and that's in general, that's, that's a trend you see a lot in serverless is that, um, you don't have to do anything and things just improve because AWS just makes things better behind you, which is kind of a nice, uh, sort of free win. But generally, uh, cold starts really only become an issue for applications that tend to be lower traffic volumes. Um, and what I mean is if you have an application that has high enough traffic volumes to constantly keep your Lambda functions executing, you're, you're generally always going to have warm functions. So cold starts become less of an issue. And that's really the pattern that a lot of developers don't realize up front before you go into production. When you're developing, you're sending maybe a couple of hundred requests a day, if that, if you're, if you're a really large team, uh, to your Lambda functions that you're testing. So your likelihood of cold starts are a lot of a lot, lot higher. And as soon as you get into production and you have a few thousand to a few hundred thousand or more a day, those Lambda functions stay warm and, and those cold starts don't really happen as much. And thankfully, like I said, the technology keeps changing. So now AWS has introduced features like provision concurrency. So if you end up in a situation where you see cold starts happening a lot more than you're comfortable with, you can actually just pay to have uh, Lambda functions always available and warm for you. Uh, generally, I always recommend that as a sort of a last ditch uh, practice, a last attempt at uh, eliminating cold starts for you because that's going to cost you money. Personally, though, when you mention mention the size of, of run times and so on, I've generally not found that to have as much of an impact as uh, as as I think most people mention. Um, but that's just personally, I might I might be I might just be missing uh, the effect of runtime size. That's great, and I think that's something that uh, something else that you pointed out when you were talking about the migration that y'all did was uh, was around specifically around PHP and how as a PHP. Uh, application that you broke out into microservices and started working with serverless. I'm not sure. I don't think it was available then with the PHP and Lambda mixed together. But I guess I would. I'd be really interested. What do you think about the PHP and Lambda uh, being supported now? Is that is that feasible? Is that something that you would recommend someone do? Uh, have you played around with it at all? So right now, there's actually a couple of ways to do uh, PHP and Lambda. I mean, you could do the bring your own runtime. That's obviously an option now uh, with Lambda. Um, and there's even a project called Bref. Uh, if anybody's not familiar, we've worked with the uh, creator of the Bref project to help him uh, get Bref running with the serverless framework. So the serverless framework basically acts as just the, the deployment mechanism 
underneath a PHP project and Brev just sort of handles that interface between the two. And that's pretty cool because for a lot of uh, PHP developers, the, the whole ecosystem is about using tools like Symfony, Laravel, and so on that let you build your application in in a uh, framework and then deploy that into uh, wherever you're wherever you're going to be hosting that. So there's there's many ways to skin that cat. I mean, if you're a if you're a traditional PHP dev used to using the frameworks and you just want to get gain some of the benefits out of uh, using serverless, uh, you know, hosting things on Lambda uh, and so on, uh, then using a, 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 a project like Bref is a great way to get going because that's essentially going to use your existing knowledge and just push that into Lambda. And this is similar to we've seen a lot of folks doing similar things with Express, for example, where you can build an Express application and then up that and deploy it into Lambda, which isn't a bad pattern that, that we see that quite a bit. It's one of the reasons we now have one of our components is the Express component, for example. Um, but you can, because you can bring your own runtime, and actually Bref, I think, also supports the ability to run individual PHP Lambda functions. So what's quite useful there is instead of having a single API gateway endpoint pointing at a PHP monolithic stack, uh, you can have API gateway pointing at individual PHP uh, Lambda functions. Um, and at the end of the day, I particularly don't care what language anybody uses to build their Lambda functions with. If it works for you, if you get the performance characteristics you want, and if your development team uh, knows the language and prefers to use it, whatever is productive. Uh, ultimately, it, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, these days as well, things like Java traditionally have been uh, moved away from uh, in, in the serverless world because of the cold stock times that you often get with uh, Java-based Lambda functions. And I'm seeing more and more uh, Java-based Lambda functions being deployed these days, uh, mostly because teams are realizing that the pr the productivity they can get out of using a language and ecosystem they know really, really well is a good thing. Um, in my in in my example, you know, moving away from PHP to essentially a Node-based world, this was driven primarily because of that that POC we initially did. And thankfully, um, what I can say is from from my experience is that. When you really start sinking into serverless and start using a lot of the managed services available to you in the cloud, uh, in my case, AWS predominantly, your, the amount of code that you actually need, needs to write drops precipitously. Uh, so that's why I've, I've started classifying serverless, uh, you know, into the sort of low code, no code scenario where you can build entire applications with a, a, you know, a couple dozen lines of code and it does things that would normally take a few hundred lines of code at least to build, uh, which is really compelling when you, when you think about how most problems with applications these days end up being in the code people write. So um, yeah, whatever floats your boat, write your code that way. And you'll probably find using serverless, you end up writing a lot less code anyway. So ultimately, it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, this is really awesome. And uh, I think it's a great point to, to kind of bring up that, you know, we're, we're far enough in the maturity of serverless where these languages are more feasible now. It, and, and you mentioned Java uh, with the cold start times are being approved. And, and you also mentioned at the beginning with... Uh, when it comes to these fully managed services with AWS, like they're continuously improving stuff in the background. So it's like what it looks like today may not look like six months from now or a year from now. Um, and, and having all these people integrate in and use it, uh, I think it, you know, it really does wonders for what the future can look like. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, that's like a, one really big thing that I wanted to bring up. Um, but uh, you also brought up something else. You mentioned it very briefly, serverless components. And then you also mentioned less code or no code. Um, I think all those things kind of have a, they kind of fit together. Um, and so do you mind giving an idea for the, the listeners, like what is serverless components and, and what is it trying to solve? So ultimately, the whole idea behind serverless to me is to get developers to put solutions out for the businesses that they work with. Um, because I, I, I find a lot of developers will spend a lot of time trying to build 
really fancy solutions to really simple problems a lot of the time. They want the perfect uh, code base. They want to build something really spectacular when really the, the business that they're working with just wants them to solve the problem. They want customers to be satisfied. Uh, they just want stuff to work. And while serverless is great, serverless simplifies a lot of things in, for developers. It takes away a lot of that infrastructure overhead that you often have to code for and worry about. Uh, something that ORMs, for example, did maybe not so greatly in the past where they try to abstract away the underlying infrastructure. But serverless is so it is different enough from what we've been doing as developers in the past that it requires its own set of its own education. There's a lot of things to pick up and learn and try to understand and and know about before you can really feel like you're you're getting into building a proper serverless application. And unfortunately, it it, it affects adoption to some degree, um, and it affects the ability for folks to solve the problems that they need to solve. So we claim serverless is this great panacea for for, for solving problems, and then folks have to spend a lot of time learning a bunch of new stuff. So the idea with components is to essentially take a lot of the sort of best ideas we've seen and implementations of just solving a specific use case uh, and giving you a very simple way to get a solution out without having to worry about any, even the underlying configuration of managed services themselves. So Simplest Framework V1 is incredibly flexible. It's incredible, incredibly good at letting you compose an application that solves a problem uh, by combining all these managed services together in the cloud that to, to to solve that problem. But if you don't know what Kinesis is or what Lambda is or API Gateway or DynamoDB or any of, these, any of these other tools, they're not going to be much use to you. So instead, what Components does is it abstracts it even one step further and says, do you want a website? Do you want to put uh, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript into the cloud and make it available publicly? Then use the website component. Point at your static files that you've generated from React, Vue, or whatever other front-end framework you like. Run a serverless deploy, and off it goes. It goes into your AWS account. It creates the S3 bucket. It'll create the CloudFront distribution in front of it. It'll even hook up a domain if you've added that into the configuration file. And ultimately, for something like the website component, you need a configuration file of maybe five or six lines uh, at a minimum to get something to get something up and running. It really doesn't need much. Uh, you need an AWS account uh, and that's and, and some files to push up. You could even just, you know, create your own index.html file in Notepad uh, for for all the website component cares, and it's going to put that up for you and make it available. And that didn't take any necessarily any uh, knowledge of understanding all the infrastructure underneath. You can get that up and running. And after that, if you're one of those, if you're a developer that does want to understand everything underneath, then you can go ahead and take the time and do so. But in the meantime, you're still solving problems. Um, and this is, and it's not just uh, the website component. The, the whole point of this is that we want to build a collection of solutions to common problems that we see. So another very, very common one we see is, I mean, and I mentioned it uh, previously, is we see folks deploying Express applications into AWS using Lambda. And there's ways to do this. So the serverless framework provides the tools to do this. You can use certain plugins as well that ease this uh, configuration and setup. Uh, but it's still a bit of a faff. It's still a bit annoying to have to do this each and every time. So instead, we've got the Express component where essentially you point at uh, your app.js file, which is where Express sits. You uh, you run serverless deploy and it, it deploys it into your AWS account. Now you've got an Express application uh, hosted in Lambda, uh, fronted by API Gateway with all the right configuration that's needed. And you can go ahead and build your Express application hosted in Lambda now without, without having to worry about any of that underlying configuration that's needed. And if you just want to solve the problem, you just put, you just keep using Express like you've used in the in the past. And if you do, well, now you can take the time and go and understand what's happening in in your AWS account. But it's, you've solved the problem; it's it's done. Um, one of the things, just to quickly mention as well, 
is that this is not just uh, something that we're building into. We're not just we, we're not just hoping to build components ourselves and make everybody use them. What we've done is we've got a central components core that allows you to build a component on top of technologies that can help you do this. So the idea is that I can build a component that has certain hooks like deploy, which can then do things in AWS, and I can write my own component that can do these things as well. Uh, to the point where we even have, we, we, we're even busy developing a registry that you can publish your components to that you can then reuse in future and others can too. Similar to an NPM registry style or any, any other kind of package manager like that, where folks can develop their own components, publish them and make them available to others to use. So we recently had one of our engineers just build the, the uh, Lambda Cron component. So now you can have an AWS Lambda function. Uh, the, the code for a Lambda function deployed into AWS as a cron job with three or four lines of configuration, and you're done. You don't have to do anything else but just type serverless deploy and some code that you want to run in the cron. Yeah, that that is really cool, and I, I think it's uh it's it kind of fits all this stuff together. Where it's like um, you know it's like we've if you think about the cloud spectrum of how things have transitioned from on-premise servers to EC2 or uh, virtual machines to containers to Lambda functions, it's like we keep like uh, I guess like pulling back or adding more more layers of abstraction as we go, and and components feels like you know uh, I, I've used it before and it is like five lines, which is really crazy um, because the amount of I think it's going to be really interesting to see how new people versus like existing serverless developers and cloud developers or cloud native developers um, operate because there's there's so much being done in those five lines where it's like uh, you know like you mentioned CloudFront the domain. Uh, the S3 bucket, all those things are being handled automatically. Um, that, you know, I think for me, when I think about it, I go, oh my gosh, there's like so, so much cloud formation involved in that, um, to, to, to make that happen. And yeah, I guess like it, it puts you in a weird spot if you're like a, a developer, because I think you sometimes might see it and go like, this feels like the right thing to do, but also I like building cloud formation <laughs> as well. Well, you know what's really cool? Uh, I, I, and I wanted to touch on some of the other aspects of components that, that, uh, that, that we, the, one of the reasons why we built them in the first place, it's not necessarily just for the use case side of things. That was one of the sort of starting points for us. We wanted to make adoption of serverless easier. But along the way, we also wanted to uh, remove some of the difficulties that serverless in general still has, which, for example, like local development uh, is one of those things. Um, being able to develop. Uh, so it's such a difficult topic to talk about because local development is a difficult thing to do with serverless because ultimately the, the, the whole idea behind serverless is you're consuming managed services so that you don't have code to execute. And if you don't have code to execute, there's nothing to run locally. You're going to potentially have something. There's going to potentially be some small amount of glue code that you're going to need anyway to help coordinate some of the stuff. So when it came to components, we wanted to, uh, we wanted to find a way to make that uh, local uh, the style of local development feel better. Because the best way to build serverless applications with a with serverless framework is to actually deploy into the cloud repeatedly while you're developing. You're, you're building something, you, you, you deploy, you test, you edit, you deploy, you test, because ultimately you need to test how your application runs in the cloud. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work done to try and emulate local, local uh, services from AWS with things like local stack and uh, unit testing frameworks and so on. And that, those, get you, those get you forward a little bit with local testing. But ultimately, uh, it's, you end up in the same situation that we've, we've, we've always been in where it works on my machine. And as soon as you put it, put it into the hosting environment, it just falls over because there's something that you didn't quite account for. So that's why pushing to the cloud and testing there works better in most cases because you need to actually test in that infrastructure. So 
components took us a different step. And what we ended up finding was that we wanted an experience. Uh, one of the annoying experiences of testing in the cloud with serverless is the, the amount of time you spend waiting around for stuff to get into the cloud. And that's where components tries to alleviate that problem because we ended up taking components to a point where we have a deployment engine for components that is actually sitting in AWS. It's in the cloud itself. So where you're used to with the serverless framework running serverless deploy on your local machine and the, your local machine building a CloudFormation file and uh, zipping that up and uploading it into S3 and going through this whole process of, of deploying into the cloud and CloudFormation managing state, the original version of components that were released, released last year didn't use cloud, doesn't use CloudFormation. Uh, it uses the AWS SDK, which is why it can be so fast. Uh, it's not waiting for CloudFormation to build entries, uh, entities and resources in uh, AWS. Uh, but the problem we found was state management for one. Um, and the deploy times were still a little bit long uh, in that case. So as soon as we moved that deployment engine into AWS itself, now we found that we could do things like make AWS SDK calls internally in AWS, which is blindingly quick. We've been able to get deployments down to two or three seconds on a lot of the components now. So when you're editing code and it gets deployed into the cloud, it happens in seconds. So that, that testing loop doesn't feel as strained anymore. Um, and what this also means is we can do things like put in a dev mode. So for example, now with the current version of Express, of the Express component, if you've deployed the Express component and you're making changes to that app.js file, uh, you can make a change. Uh, you can type, well, you start off with serverless dev in the CLI. And this starts watching your files in your project. You make an edit. You save the file. It instantly deploys that into the cloud because that deployment happens in AWS already. And uh, you can now test your endpoints in your browser and and see the log files in your CLI. So in dev mode, you're seeing the, the log messages that would normally go into CloudWatch. You normally have to go break out into CloudWatch to go see those. Those are coming into your CLI, just like a regular dev mode would on your local machine. And these things are instant. These things are happening as soon as you're building and testing. You don't have to wait a minute or two for a deployment to finish. You don't have to uh, go look at CloudWatch or wait for a, a, a poll to happen on a CloudWatch log. You're getting logs uh, instantly. And this whole dev mode happens quite seamlessly. And this is part of the component's core. This is something any components developer can potentially... Oh, and state management as well. So this is anything any components developer could tie into. Our component's core that we built allows you to develop a component that integrates into a dev mode feature that you can tie into, that integrates into state management that you can tie into. So your own component can store state in the cloud so that you have central state management now, just like CloudFormation would give you. And uh, there's metrics too. So I mentioned the dashboard we, that we've been switching away from on UX-wise, but this has also been to help support our components infrastructure because uh, components, you need, you need some way to monitor these things. You need to wait, some way to see how they perform, whether they're erroring out. And what's cool with this is that that components core I'm talking about has hooks in it where you could essentially pull out whatever metrics you need out of the resources you've deployed and send that into uh, into the application as, as a metric, as a, as a chart or a graph, so that anybody who deploys your component and gets traffic on it can go look in app.serverless.com and see traffic on it, see uh, how long things take to execute, whatever metric it, it literally is, could be any metric that you push. Express component, for example, uh, looks at HTTP metrics, uh, how long how long uh, an invocation took, uh, what the latencies looked like. Uh, you could have a DynamoDB entry that tells you how long an ex uh, a, a query took to run or whatever it is you can think of. So all of that sort of bundles in and helps make that, that local development experience a lot better for folks using components now. Um, and, and again, reduces that barrier of entry. So we've got all of these things working together to help just improve the experience of developing with serverless. Yeah, this is that's a. I mean, you touched on so many things, and it's and it's really awesome to hear that. Uh, you know, it's it's more than just the infrastructure like creation. It's it's the local testing. It's the local emulation problem. It's it's like 
all these are like the slow deployment times, all those things uh, that are being kind of tackled all at once. And it also seems like once you have control of part of the infrastructure deployment in that way with components, then you get to do those things in the background. Like you were saying, like you own the almost like the cloud formation pipeline at that point on serverless Inc. side. And now you can add in those things like easily add metrics, easily uh, have deploy hooks, things like that, um, that you can kind of sprinkle in to add additional functionality to new people um, that are creating components so they can create their own, add to it uh, without having to kind of reinvent the wheel. And I, I think that that's, that's a really cool, and it's also in JavaScript. So <laughs> and all, of our components are open, all of our components are open source as well. So if anybody does want to, for example, take the Express component and change it to fit their needs, they can just they can just fork that project and build that and then publish their brand new component that they've created into the registry and continue to use it from there. I mean, yeah, it's all open. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And so I guess, you know, one thing that you talked about, too, was barrier of entry. And so, um, you know, definitely when you have to jump into something and it's, it's still actively maturing and there's, you know, service, serverless and serviceful. Um, when you actually start building out these applications, um, do you have any advice for for new people that are getting started? Um, uh, where where they should look to start learning serverless? How would you start today? Well, uh, my, my initial start. Uh, so, thankfully, first of all, the serverless framework has really great documentation, um, and that's really what helped me get started uh, to a large degree. Uh, just on at serverless.com/docs, uh, there's there's enough information there to sort of start get going and and playing with things. And at, at the same time, I've also been, uh, you know, over the last year or so, I've been working on finishing a course, uh, a free course that we uh, put together at uh, serverless.com as well. So if you go to serverless.com slash learn, uh, there's two courses there. Um, and the one that I'm, I'm still finishing on, there's still a few uh, parts of it left, but there's more than enough there for somebody new to serverless to sort of get in and 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 start figuring out what serverless is and how to use it and how to build an application. And we're also going to be ramping up on the uh, educational side of components as well because I feel like com- components is a really great way to get somebody into serverless. It's a great gateway drug uh, into serverless because, like I said, you know you, you can do three or four lines of configuration, uh, type SLS deploy, and there you go. You've got a serverless thing in the cloud working and operational, and then take it from there to, to learn more as well, which is pretty cool. So really, I think the best place to start is maybe to take a look at the docs to, at the getting started section to play a bit. Uh, dip into the learn section if you want to look at uh, V1, and then if you and I think uh, the best documentation we've got right now is uh, at on the GitHub project for serverless components, which is uh, GitHub.com/serverless-components, and you'll find all of our sort of current components there. You can go pick one to try out, um, and. Uh, one of the other really uh, interesting ways that we've been able to work with components is we've actually integrated uh, creating components into our new uh, uh, dashboard at app.serverless.com. So if you create an account at app.serverless.com, uh, you'll actually be onboarded. You'll 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 be able to click uh, you know select what type of thing that you want to deploy. If you're going to deploy a uh, a view website, you can click the view starter. It'll give you the instructions right on the screen. You can just type straight into. The CLI, it'll automatically build the component for you and let you automatically deploy and start working with it. So if you want to get started with components, that's probably the easiest is just to go to app.serverless.com and start selecting which components you actually want to deploy. Fantastic. Well, I think we're coming up to time. So I want to give people a chance if they want to uh, connect with you, how would they go about that? Well, the easiest way uh, is on Twitter, probably. I, I keep my, my uh, DMs open there. And I encourage anybody who's interested in chatting about serverless, has any questions whatsoever, uh, just to hit me up there. I, I, I often see folks coming into serverless now and saying, I think this might be a noob question, so sorry about that. And there, 
you know, some of this is so new. I have been at it for a few years now, and I'm still learning things every single day. I only found out a couple of days ago that cloud formation was something like 10 years old, for example. Uh, so there is no new question. Everybody is starting somewhere. Everybody's still learning stuff in serverless. This is a very new field. So please, anybody, feel free to ask any question that you may have, no matter how newish you might think it sounds. Um, yeah, and, and I just love talking about the topic, so feel free. And um, did you already mention your, uh, your Twitter oh, handle? It said Gareth MCC. Awesome. All right. Well, I think I think that does it. Um, you know, thanks, Gareth, for coming on, giving us all, all this insight into the way that you view serverless and uh, the, the cool things coming out of serverless, Inc. Uh, it sounds really exciting. Awesome, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And to those listening, this has been the Talking Serverless podcast with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and you want to learn more, check out TalkingServerless.io. Uh, please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And of course, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic serverless guest.